Well, what a wonderful truth to, uh, for us to all sing together that all we have is Christ. You can uh, take the world, uh, put it all away. We have Christ, and that is, our, He is our greatest treasure. And this morning, we get to look more into His life as we open God's Word today in the book of Luke. And so I'd ask you, please bow with me in a word of prayer as we open the Word of God together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege we have to open your word, the revelation of God to us, and I pray that you would help us to open with, or to, uh, to listen with humble hearts, as was prayed earlier, Father, that we'd not only be hearers, but doers as well. And so we pray that you would please teach us in this hour. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray, amen. Well, in every battle, there are, uh, both opposing sides are seeking to get the upper hand with one another, and this is a fundamental reality of warfare. Because they want to be de- victorious over their enemies, they are constantly scheming, constantly plotting on how they might be able to overcome, how they might be able to surprise, how they might be able to be victorious over the opposing force. And sometimes great battles, many times great battles are won or lost based upon a plot that goes well or a plot that is failed. But not only that, but, church, but world history can be changed by such a plot that either succeeds or fails. I think of, for example, Operation Overlord, which was the Allies' plot in World War II to invade France and take Hitler's forces by surprise in 1944. It involved careful planning, strategic deception in order to make that plot successful. And we thank God that he enabled the Allied forces to storm the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, and the execution of that plot, we can say, changed the course of world history. But there's another plot that changed the course of world history that I want to draw our attention to this morning, and that is the plot to assassinate Jesus Christ. Many today believe that Jesus was put to death because he got on the wrong side of the powerful elite of his day. He played the wrong political cards. He pushed the wrong buttons. He made enemies of the wrong people. And so, for as great as his cause was and as innocent as he was and as loving of a man that he was, he became a, a martyr for his cause. And then his followers, after the fact, after his death, then uh, took his teachings and established what became the world's largest religion. But what most people do not see in this retelling of Jesus' death is that in the human drama, or I should say behind the human drama, was also a cosmic drama, a supernatural drama, a supernatural war that was going on. When Jesus died upon the cross, it was the climax of a war that began back in Genesis. It was a war over who would rule the universe and the earth. You see, after God created the world, he set his people, Adam and Eve, the ones he had created in his image, to rule and to cultivate the earth. They were to be his representatives and to administer his rule upon the planet. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, led those, our first parents into rebellion against their creator. Satan then continued to oppose God and his people throughout Israel's history. 
But there in the garden, a promise was given to mankind, a promise that God uh, would send someone, would be a descendant of Eve, a male descendant who would crush that serpent's head, who would finally in the end defeat Satan. That serpent would bruise the man's heel, but the descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And after waiting for millennia, this showdown took place in the first century between Jesus and Satan. If you've been with us, you know that we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and this Gospel records the events of Jesus' life and ministry. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 22 of this Gospel, Luke chapter 22, and I invite you to turn there with me this morning. Throughout Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, he has enjoyed great popularity among the masses, among the crowds, but there has also been rising opposition from the Jewish leadership. And now he is in the final week of his life, and all of that comes together, the popularity from the people as well as the opposition from the leadership here is reaching a climax in what we call his Passion Week. We know that he, uh, as we saw in Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the Sunday of this week to great fanfare. The crowds flooded out of Jerusalem out to see him coming down the Mount of Olives, riding on the foal of a donkey, and they were hailing him as the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Luke 19, 38. In a great display of his authority, he then marched into the temple the place that was controlled by the religious elite. And he then cleaned house. He threw out the money changers, and he did not allow anyone to pass through that whole temple complex. Of course, this enraged the Jewish leadership. And so then they began to send representatives to try to uh, destroy Jesus in an argument. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, the Herodians, they all send representatives. They begin to band together to be able to send people to try to, someone take down Jesus, please. Well, they all failed. And none of them succeeded. Jesus silenced them all. He reigned as the authoritative one. And so Matthew 22, verse 46 says, and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He truly silenced them all. Now, after Tuesday of the Passion Week, the record goes largely silent and picks up only once again on Thursday. On the outside, it looks like the city of Jerusalem is simply moving uh, forward toward Passover, the great celebration of the Jews, as it did every year. But behind the scenes, a sinister plot was brewing to execute Jesus of Nazareth. Now, while this intrigue is indeed fascinating, as we'll see, there is something deeper we need to see in this. We need to see that Jesus was not caught off guard by these plans. He was not caught unawares by the sinister plot towards his death. Jesus was not a helpless victim to the diabolical forces that put him on the cross. Jesus was in control the entire time. He went to the cross on his schedule. By Wednesday of the Passion Week, the chief priests and the scribes, they didn't know when Jesus was going to die. They, didn't, they knew that they wanted to kill him, but they didn't know when it was going to happen. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. 
And we'll see this here even in our passage this morning. So I invite you to follow along as I read our passage this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. Follow along as I read. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths on all our hearts. In this text this morning, verses 1 through 13, I want us to see that as preparations are made for the Passover, there's two significant moves in the plot to execute Jesus. There's two significant moves that we're going to see here. And as we see these two significant moves, we will see that Jesus was in complete control of the events leading up to his death and is therefore worthy of our submission and our adoration. For Jesus is Lord. So let's begin by looking at the first move that we see in this text and the move towards the execution of Jesus. And this move was made by Satan. This is Satan's move. And here we see the plot devised. The plot devised in verses 1 through 6. This is not the first time that we have been introduced to Satan, but it's been a while since we've seen him here in the Gospel of Luke. We first saw him in chapter 4 where he's identified as the devil. And there Jesus was sent by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And the devil is there and he tested him, he tempted him. Now the words devil and Satan are two titles for this evil adversary of God, a fallen angel as we know him. Satan simply, the word Satan simply means adversary. Then the word devil means slanderer, one who is speaking against, slandering. And so these are names that are used in the scriptures to describe this arch enemy of God, who's opposed to not only God, but his work and his people. Again, Luke chapter 4, we saw Satan tempting the Son of God, tempting Jesus to disobey God's word. And of course, Jesus passed that test with flying colors. He quotes God's word himself, showing that he himself knows God's word better than Satan does. And after that exchange, it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This tells us that Satan was going to strike again. Satan was going to attack the Son of God again. He was not yet finished. There was still an opportune time that would come. 
And so now, 18 chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, and three and a half years since this temptation, the opportune time has arrived, and Satan is making his move. But first, let's notice the groundwork that he's been doing among the Jewish leaders. We see that the plot devised was, first of all, through the Jewish leaders' murderous appetite. We see the Jewish leaders' murderous appetite in verses 1 and 2. First, Luke wants us to understand the setting of what's taking place here. You'll see it there in verse 1. Look at it with me. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Luke wants us to understand the timing. This is the great Jewish feast of the Passover. The Passover and unleavened bread were two feasts or festivals that took place right next to one another. The Passover uh, took place on the 14th of Nisan, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th of Nisan and went to the 21st, the week, the seven days following Passover. And so they were always celebrated together. And so by the time we get here to the New Testament, they were seen essentially as one festival. That's why the, the terms Passover and Unleavened Bread can be used to describe the same time period or almost the same series of events. What made these festivals significant for the Jewish people was that it was a time of deep remembrance of their history. You'll remember that Passover was instituted by God there in Exodus as Israel is looking to be redeemed out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. There have been the, the nine plagues, and in the tenth plague, God was going to kill the firstborn of every family that did not have the blood over the doorposts of their house. And so he commanded his people to choose a lamb, to bring it into their home, and then to slaughter that lamb and to spread its blood over the doorpost so that that night when they eat the meal and the angel of death comes over, the, 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 the angel would pass over their house and they would be protected from death entering their home. And therefore, they would go out in salvation. They were not to eat any leavened bread during that time. They were to cleanse their house of all yeast, of all leaven, and therefore they then also celebrated what God commanded in the Old Testament of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where there is to be no leaven or yeast within their home for that eight-day period. And so this was a, a feast that was practiced by the Jews down through their history, and they continued to do that even as we see here in the time of Jesus. It was a significant time of year for the Jews and many would come from all over the nation, even from around the world, to come to Jerusalem because they had to offer their lambs there by the, the, the lambs had to be offered by the priest there in the temple. And so Jerusalem was packed with people at this time from all over the Jewish world. However, it was during this Passover season in 33 AD that the Jewish leaders were not preoccupied with making sure the festival went off well. They were preoccupied with figuring out how they could murder Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 2. It says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. They were seeking an opportunity to secretly seize him. They, they feared that the people would would protest if they were to do it in the open, in the public. The word seeking here is in a tense that describes that it was a continual ongoing desire of theirs. They didn't go out and seeking once, they were continually seeking a time to be able to catch him. 
Matthew gives us some more detail here of this unholy huddle that took place. Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They had, they had resolved, they had consigned to the fact that they would not be able to get Jesus during this festival. They said, listen, we're going to have to wait till this feast is done. And so even though they were seething, even though they were hoping to catch him at any moment, they recognized that their hands were tied. They weren't able to do so. Now, when exactly this little, this little cabal came together and they began to huddle to decide, we're not exactly sure. It could have been late Tuesday night. I think it could also have been Wednesday but it's clear that they feared an uprising of the people. That's what Luke says. They, they were seeking this way to do it, but the reason they didn't is because they feared the people. Jesus was popular. He had just cleared the temple. He was the man in charge. And there would be a great protest if they saw, walked out there with soldiers and sought to arrest him. And therefore, because of the uprising and because of the, the, the protest, Rome may get involved. They may intervene, and that then could threaten the Jewish leader's power if Rome saw that the Jews couldn't handle themselves. And so these men, the religious leaders of Israel, they were seeking to put Jesus to death. Now, we know theologically that because of this, they had given themselves over to the designs of Satan. They were following Satan's plans in this in fact, John chapter 8, Jesus gave them a scathing condemnation. He tells the religious leaders, he says this, he says, you are of the, your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Satan's a murderer, Satan's a liar, therefore these religious leaders, as Jesus called them out, were also liars and murderers. They were following Satan's plans. But they couldn't do it by themselves. That's why they're sitting there wringing their hands, all sitting in Caiaphas' house and going, what do we do? They can't, they can't do it by themselves. And so they find themselves in a conundrum. They, they didn't know how they could execute Jesus until after this whole Passover thing was over. But little did they know that Satan was working another angle. He had co-opted an insider in Jesus' band of followers. And that leads us to the next development of this plot. We see first this, the, the Jewish leader's murderous um, appetite, but then we see secondly in verses 3 through 6, Judas's satanic agreement. Judas's satanic agreement. Enter Judas. Here he says, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Judas was one of the disciples, the twelve disciples that is described earlier in the book of Luke that Jesus called out to be with him and to learn from him, to be trained by him. Judas had been with Jesus for all three and a half years of the ministry. He had seen countless miracles. He had seen people raised from the dead. He had, he had seen numerous diseases healed. He had seen uh, the, the 5,000, the 4,000 fed from just a small scraps of food multiplied. He had seen 
and heard Jesus' voice calm the stormy waters on the Sea of Galilee. He had seen amazing things. He had also listened to hours of teaching by Jesus. I mean, think of what we have recorded, everything from the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the Olivet Discourse and everything in between and all the stuff we don't even have recorded that as Jesus taught as he went along the way, Judas heard all of that. He had seen Jesus' compassion on the poor and the destitute. He had seen his courage in the face of, the, of his opponents. And on top of all this, not only was Judas a spectator, but we need to realize that Judas was a participant in the ministry of Jesus as well. He was sent out, Luke chapter 9, as all the apostles were, two by two, to go out and to minister. They preached the good news of the gospel. They healed and cast out demons. We have to assume that Judas was included in that. It didn't say he was excluded. All of them went out. And yet in all of this, his heart never believed in Christ. He never trusted in Jesus. And at some point, possibly right here, he switched from being a follower of Christ to being opposed to Jesus, being against him. It says, verse 3, that Satan entered into Judas. Now, this seems to be different than the demonic possessions that we see elsewhere in the Gospels. In those cases, it seems that, it, that the demon kind of takes over the person. They're out of their right mind, and they're doing uh, some, some extra behavior that they normally wouldn't be characterized by. Here, it seems that Judas continues on his way, carrying on in his normal, cool attitude, but instead, he's now entered by the evil one. Judas here allowed himself to be influenced by the devil himself. And I believe that here in this example of Judas, as we will see through this narrative over the intervening weeks, we have a solemn warning. Because with Judas, we have one who was so close to Christ, you can't get any closer. Maybe through Peter, James, and John, the inner circle that had a, had the, were privy to a few extra events. But for the most part, he was, he saw everything. And yet, he did not trust and believe in Christ. And friends, this is a warning for all since that day, that it's possible to be around Jesus. It's possible to be around the things of Christ and yet to not know him. It's possible to be near Jesus and yet far away from him. It's possible to be an expert on things Jesus and yet not truly know Christ and trust him. It's possible to even teach on eternal life and herald the gospel and yet be utterly lost. This is a solemn warning for all of us. It's not that Judas was saved and lost his salvation. Rather, his heart was revealed to be false in this crucial hour. He never was truly with Jesus. He was never truly redeemed. He was around it, but he didn't truly believe in Christ. And friends, this is true of all those who apostatize from the faith, all those who were once in the faith and yet now walk contrary to it. What they reveal is that they never truly believed. From all outward appearances, yes, it looks like they are Christians. It looks like they are believers. We, might, we call them brothers. We call them sisters. But in time, 
the true colors are shown. They walk away from Christ because they never truly believed in him. Now, the end of the story is not written. All those today who are still living and breathing and yet have, at this moment, have rejected the gospel that they've heard and believed, or they said they believed at one point, the, st the story is not yet written. There is still time to turn. There is still time to believe. And friends, my heart is burdened for those who may be here this morning, who may sit under this preaching week after week, who may be around the, the classes and the small groups and the Bible studies and be so close and yet so far. I, this is a call for each one of us to examine our hearts. Do we really know Christ? Or have we just been well acquainted with all of the churchy things, all of the Christianized language? Maybe you've been around church for decades. Maybe you've attended all the Bible studies, all the church socials. Whenever the church doors were open, you were here. But friends, if you're not trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, if you're trusting in your goodness and your righteousness at some level, that is not true salvation. But let me be clear this morning. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace and the door is not closed on anybody who is still living and breathing. If you are hearing me this morning, it is not too late. You can humble your heart right where you are at. You can call out to the living God and he will hear you and you can plead for his mercy that he would save your soul. It doesn't matter what you've done. He will forgive if you will confess your sins and repent this very hour. It is not too late. And so I exhort you, right where you're sitting in the quietness of your heart, turn to Christ, humble your heart to him and ask for him to save you today. What we see here in the person of Judas, the Satan's influence had pushed him over the edge to take part in this abominable crime. Because of Satan's influence, Judas then goes away, verse four, it says, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. He wanted to uh, betray Jesus. And why did he do this? It's one of the big questions of church history. Why did Judas go through with this? And there's been many hypotheses put forward. I think the one that we can bank on at any sort of level is the reality that he craved money. John chapter 12 says that he, he had ownership or he controlled the, the purse of the band of disciples and he would often pilfer from it. He was a man who was controlled by greed. And here it says that he goes and he, they, can, he, uh, they agreed to give him money, verse 5. And he's satisfied, verse 6. He's consented and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so... Best we can tell is that for 30 pieces of silver, as Matthew 26 tells us, Judas was willing to betray his, the one he called Lord. Such a small amount for such a great crime. It was simple greed that led him to, to commit the greatest sin in all of history. And I, 
I think this is a lesson for us as well, friends, that greed has that kind of power. The love of money has that kind of power over our hearts. It can have amazing power, and therefore we must be vigilant against such corrupting influences. The Apostle Paul said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And so, church, we must not flirt with the affection of affluence, but rather we must put the love of money far from us. Now, the Jewish leaders, again, they were sitting there wringing their hands wondering what they're going to do, and here in walks Judas. And I'm sure that kind of the room got silent for a moment. They're kind of looking around like, what's he doing here? This guy who is part of our enemy just suddenly walks in the room, and then he declares that he wants to betray Jesus for a sum of money. And their jaws have to have hit the floor. They're going, what? We, we, we thought we were just confounded figuring out how we're going to do this, and all of a sudden, it came to us on a silver platter. And it says, look at verse 5, and they were glad. The word there is rejoiced. The religious leaders were rejoiced. I have to imagine, you know, when Judas walks out and closes the door, and then you hear the muffled cheering that's going on inside the room because they just landed the jackpot. They can't believe that this just happened. An insider was going to deliver Jesus to them. It's amazing. And I, I have to believe that these men believed that this was a sign of God's favor upon them. They looked at the circumstances and they realized that in God's providence, he brought about this wonderful turn of events. And I have to see a, a warning here, friends, that just because circumstances seem to fall into place for us or seem to surprisingly come together doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing our plans. It could be that, but it could also be something else. We don't just look at providence and everything come together. We need to evaluate our plans also according to God's word. This whole plan was evil, and therefore, even though circumstances came together, it wasn't right. And so we need to look in the book and we need to also look at providence and we need to look together to see if this is a sign of God's favor. But here we see in verse 6 that Judas consented and he sought an opportunity. The diabolical plot was hatched and now it was just a matter of time. Jesus now had a satanically inspired man in his inner group and he now needed to be extra careful. But the question is, did this take him by surprise? Was Jesus in danger because he didn't know what was happening? Would he fall into their trap unawares? Not at all. And this brings us to the second move in this text. First, we saw Satan's move, the plot devised. Now let's see the second move, Jesus' counter move, the plot delayed, the plot delayed. The Jewish leaders thought that they would be taking Jesus by surprise, but Jesus was fully aware and he was in control. Late on Tuesday, Jesus had said the following to his disciples, recorded for us in Matthew 26, verse 2. He told them this, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Again, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they didn't know when Jesus was going to be killed. They were wringing their hands wondering when it was going to happen. And Jesus there tells his disciples, listen, in two days, I'm going to be delivered up. 
Jesus knew exactly what would take place on Passion Week. He knew it would result in his death by crucifixion. And this is amazing insight. He was not under any illusion of safety or security. And yet, did he flee? Did he run away? No, he continued on the plan that was set for him. He was determined. He made it clear that his life wasn't taken from him. It wasn't that he was just going along and someone killed him and he had no control over it. Rather, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said this. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He laid down his own life, and he did it when the time was right. Before he would allow, before he would allow himself to be caught, though, he, there was something he wanted to do first, and that was he wanted to have Passover with his disciples. This was crucially important for him. He wanted to have a final intensive time privately with his disciples to teach them, to fellowship with them before the cross. And we have the teaching recorded for us in John chapter 13 through 17. We call it the upper room discourse. But such a private affair when they were away from the crowd would be the perfect opportunity for Judas to set it up with the religious leaders to capture Jesus because there would be no uproar. There would be no uprising. Everyone would be celebrating Passover. And so Jesus needed to prepare this meal so that Judas wouldn't know where it would take place. And so verse 7 through 13 describe exactly how Jesus is going to do that. Look first in verse 7. Judas, or Judas, Luke rather. Uh, Luke gives us, again, the timing here, which is so crucial. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The day of unleavened bread. Again, we see Passover and unleavened bread both being described for this festival season. This was clearly on the Thursday of Passion Week, which, which was the 14th of Nisan. And you can see uh, how... This, Luke, particularly notes the time here. This was the day that the lamb had to be sacrificed. It was necessary, it was required that the lamb be sacrificed on this day. But then we see, look at verse 8. He says, so Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Jesus crafts some wise plans. And he sends his disciples, Peter and John in particular, into the city to prepare the Passover. Again, Jesus is not a pawn for his enemies. He is taking the initiative. He is going to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And no scheming by his enemies is going to interrupt that, is going to derail his plans. And so he sends Peter and John. But it's interesting, the way he's concocted this plan, let's consider that Judas was standing right there. You know, the disciples are all lingering around. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, John, come here. And Judas just happens to be standing there, and he overhears this whole thing. Is Judas going to know where the Passover is being held? No, not at all. So J Jesus can give him all the instructions. He doesn't have to whisper in their ear. Because, again, the, the rest of the disciples don't know Judas has betrayed, betrayed the Lord. And so he sends, it seems innocently, just Peter and John to go and to prepare the Passover. 
But the key issue is where is it going to be held? You notice that the length of time in the text is all around where because that is so crucial that it be done in a place that Judas does not know. I believe that Jesus may have used Wednesday, again, which is silent in the text, to, to arrange these plans with the master of the house. This master may have been a disciple, someone who followed Jesus, the one that Jesus knew. And so he set up this signal that, that I believe one of the male servants would be carrying a jar of water as the disciples walked in. And they were to speak to the, follow this man to the house. They get to the house. They ask for the master of the house. The master comes forward. And he, they are supposed to tell them, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And the masters would then show them this upper room. Christian tradition informs us that this very well may have been Mary, the master of the house, the one who owned this house, may have been Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Again, this is Christian tradition. We don't have uh, too many sources to back that up, but there's no reason to discredit that tradition. They were a wealthy family that lived on the upper hill of Jerusalem, the upper city, and it was wealthy because they had an upper room. They didn't just have a single story. They had a second story as well. And a second story room that was big. It was big enough for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate Passover. And so verse 13 says that they go and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Now, by preparing the Passover, it was not just to secure the room and consider it done. They had to do a number of things. They had to get the spotless lamb. They had to then go wait in line at the temple so that the lamb could be sacrificed. They then, when they had their turn, the, the, the priest would sacrifice it, and then they would send the carcass home for it to be eaten by the family, as Exodus 12 stipulated. They would also need to pick up some bitter herbs for their meal. They would need to prepare the unleavened bread. They would need to pick up the wine. Now, Peter and John may have done all these preparations or the servants of the household may have helped as well, but the point is that they saw, too, the preparation of this Passover meal. And next week, we'll look more into the details of what was particularly composed in a Jewish Passover. We who are in the West who uh, don't know much about uh, Jewish festivals and uh, how they celebrate the Passover meal, we'll go into that detail next week. But what we see here, friends, is that as Jesus prepares this meal, he is in total control. At a time when the most powerful men in the nation are thirsty for his blood and one of his friends has betrayed him, Jesus is in complete control. The cross was not an accident. Jesus will lay down his life when he intends to. Now, just because Jesus is in control doesn't mean that these men, Judas and the chief priests, are off the hook. They are culpable for their actions. And so it is here at the cross that we have the greatest display of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. These two things that Christians down through the ages have tried to put together, and yet they are to be held in tension. God, through the cross, brought about the death of his son in order to accomplish salvation, and yet those who sought Jesus' death were each guilty before Almighty God. The Apostle Peter captured this tension well in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon there at Pentecost when he said this. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Human responsibility, you crucified him, and yet divine sovereignty, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This tension is also expressed in Acts chapter 4 in the prayer of the early church. For they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility came together at the cross. How did we smooth all those out? We can't in our own minds, but we know that it works out in the plan of God, and we need to trust that. God is in control, and yet he uses means, and sinful men are some of those means. Church, in this text that we've seen this morning, Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 13, we see that the Jews are preparing their lambs for sacrifice to celebrate Passover. But deeper than that, we see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was being prepared to take our sin upon himself. There's a deeper Passover going on here. And next week, as Jesus sits down to celebrate with his disciples, we're going to see that at a deeper level. But we're reminded of John the Baptist who declared in John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Lamb. And that led Paul then in 1 Corinthians 5 to say and to remind the church that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Friends, we don't celebrate the Passover, but we, each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, that was slain for us. Passover was a time to celebrate the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but in 33 AD, it changed forever by the death of the Lamb of God. And now the celebration will be to remember our deliverance, not from Egypt, but from sin. And so today, we must celebrate the fact that Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed so that God's wrath would pass over us. We should be slain. We deserve to be slain because of our sin. But because we have trusted in the blood of the lamb, he will pass over us. Amen? Amen. And so therefore, what do we do with this lamb? We bow down and worship him. He laid down his life for us. And so we will sing with the choirs of heaven, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text this morning that reminds us of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. That even as he went to the cross and even as his enemies circled around him, he continued to entrust himself to you and to your plan. He continued to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, and he moved according to your will. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts this morning, that we would each individually trust this Passover lamb, trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, to recognize that there is salvation nowhere else, no other name given among men by which you must be saved. May we each this morning recognize that for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.